Before you settle in to listen to this month's episode, let us offer you a piece of advice. Track down something to take notes with. This conversation is jam-packed with advice for breaking into SciComm, vivid analogies to describe genomic epidemiology, and thought-provoking discussions of what it might mean to catalyze local research to address shared global health challenges. Taking the host seat this month is Dr. Angela Kaida, a scientific advisor here at the Women's Health Research Institute, exploring these topics alongside Dr. Jennifer Gardy, Deputy Director, Surveillance Data and Epidemiology for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's malaria team. Before this, Dr. Gardy spent 10 years at the BC Centre for Disease Control and the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health, where she held the Canada Research Chair in Public Health Genomics. Her research focused on the use of genomics as a tool to understand pathogen transmission and incorporated techniques drawn from genomics, bioinformatics, modeling, information visualization, and the social sciences. In 2018, Dr. Gardy was named one of BC's most influential women in STEM by BC Business Magazine and was named one of the Government of Canada's 20 Women of Impact in STEM. And in 2021, she was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in recognition of her work on pathogen genomic epidemiology. In addition to her science work, Dr. Gardy is also an award-winning science communicator, hosting many episodes of science documentary television, including The Nature of Things and Daily Planet, as well as authoring two science books for children. To learn more about Dr. Gardy, Dr. Kaida, or to access the resources mentioned in today's episode, please check out our show notes. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Angela Kaida. I'm an Associate Prof in Canada Research Chair in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Gardy, um, who works with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, Jen, can I turn it over to you to introduce yourself? Of course, of course. Um, and first of all, thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here chatting with you. Um, I am the Deputy Director of Surveillance Data and Epidemiology for the Malaria Team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, part of their Global Health Division. And there, uh, I really oversee our strategy and our investment that is focused around empowering national malaria control program, uh, programs to use high quality data for better decisions making. So my work really covers everything from surveillance strengthening to genomics to geospatial and math modeling, um, all as tools in the fight against malaria. It's a busy job. It sounds like a busy job. And so that's fantastic introduction because I actually want to take us a bit back in time with my first question for you. Before you joined the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you spent a decade here in BC working with the BC Center for Disease Control, as well as an appointment at UBC. So can you tell us a bit about the research that you were working on at that time? Of course, yeah. So I joined BCCDC in 2009. Uh, it was actually during the last pandemic, the H1N1 uh, influenza pandemic. And what I did at BCCDC, where I spent a, a decade, was something that was really new at the time. Um, I was working in the genomic epidemiology space. Um, and genomic epidemiology is something that these days, especially um, 
in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think people are starting to become a lot more familiar with. Genomic epidemiology basically says, let's look at the genome of a pathogen. So in the case of the COVID-19 pandemic, let's look at the SARS-CoV-2 viral genome, and let's deduce interesting things from that. So in the current pandemic, genomic epidemiology is at the moment being uh, used to identify new variants uh, like Delta and like Omicron to track how those are spreading over time. Early on in the pandemic, in those first few months um, in uh, 2020, genomics was being used to trace the origins of the outbreak. Um, where did it come from? Were there any spillover events? How did it start to spread in places like Canada, uh, like the US? Uh, people are also using genomics um, to do wastewater surveillance. Um, can we track the spread of this pathogen um, without having to rely on testing data, but instead by looking for um, nucleic acid signals in sewage water. So this concept of using genomics as a tool in your epidemiological toolkit, um, that's really genomic epidemiology in a nutshell. And so like I said, it, you know, it is something that's on people's radar now. Um, but 13 years ago, when I started at BCCDC, this was something that was completely new. So my research um, back then was really all about um, kind of helping to establish the foundations of this technique, something that nobody was really doing yet. Um, so basically, when you are doing genomic epidemiology, you are reading the complete genome of a pathogen. Could be a bacteria, could be a virus. These days I look at malaria parasites, but you're basically reading the genetic instructions that encode that living thing. And back in 2009, back in the early 2000s, doing genomics for a pathogen was a relatively slow and expensive um, process. The example that I often give is a bacterial genome. Um, I had a particular interest in tuberculosis. So the mycobacterium tuberculosis genome, if you printed it out as text, it would be about as long as the book War and Peace. If you wanted to read that with traditional genome sequencing technology, it would take months and it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But what you started to see in the early 2000s, and again, sort of scaling up around 2007, 8, 9, was the rise of what we often describe of uh, described as next generation sequencing technologies. These were technologically much faster, much cheaper, much more efficient ways of reading those genetic instructions. So Whereas genomics and bacterial genomics and viral genomics previously used to be limited in scope, you know, you might sequence one representative mycobacterium tuberculosis or one representative E. coli, um, it suddenly had the opportunity to scale up. It's like, you know, you wouldn't want to have a zoo that just had one of every animal uh, when you've got a whole bunch of, you know, a bunch of lions in the zoo, a bunch of tigers in the zoo. Suddenly you can understand so much more about that species, learn about the differences between them. So I joined BCCDC at the time with this new technology that was suddenly allowing us to sequence many mycobacterium tuberculosis genomes, many E. coli genomes was just coming to fruition. So when I joined, um, this availability of this new technology, it really opened the door to an intriguing possibility, which was, could you 
sequence multiple isolates from a single outbreak of an infectious disease. DNA fingerprinting as a technique in epidemiology had been used for a while. It was something very similar to you know, say you're watching um, a crime show or you're watching one of the uh, talk shows where they're doing the you are not the father paternity testing. That's basically DNA fingerprinting, but for humans, you're looking at a little tiny bit of the human genome, not the whole thing, just a couple of uh, spots around the genome um, to, you know, in, in those cases, identify or link a suspect to a crime scene or link a father to a child. Um, you could do the same thing in the pathogen world. You could look at DNA fingerprints um, of bacterial isolates, of viral isolates, and use it to say, oh, this isolate is part of an outbreak. So, you know, imagine you had a, a foodborne outbreak, salmonella, 100 or so cases, you would use DNA fingerprinting um, to say which of those cases are truly related to each other and actually represent an outbreak with a common source versus, you know, what are just things occurring regularly in the, the background, your sort of baseline salmonella. So this concept of DNA fingerprinting had been around for a while, but with the advent of this next-gen sequencing technology, the potential to look at whole genomes from, you know, the multiple salmonellas that you would um, sample in a foodborne outbreak, we had suddenly had this hypothesis that maybe if we did whole genome sequencing, read all the DNA, not just little bits of the genome, maybe we could get even more info. Maybe we could not just say, oh, these, you know, 60 salmonella isolates are part of a single outbreak, but maybe we could start to do things like infer the direction of transmission. So when I joined CDC in 2009, we were the first group ever um, to try whole genome sequencing of nearly all of the samples from an outbreak. It was a large outbreak of tuberculosis that had um, happened over many years on Vancouver Island. And honestly, I mean, we just went into this having no idea what we were going to find. Uh, it was kind of an interesting experiment. We had access to the technology. We had the funding to do it. And we said, well, <laughs> it, this, this could be cool. And it turned out to be extremely cool. Um, it turned out to actually um, set my career in motion, we found that although the genomes were incredibly similar to each other, there were just a handful of differences. Um, like if I were to go back to the war and peace analogy, it would be like reading 30 copies of war and peace and maybe finding six or seven typos, single letter typos in that whole collection of stuff that you read. But those typos, those were enough to allow us to figure out who had most likely transmitted to whom. And so this is really kind of the, the first true um, large-scale genomic epidemiology study. We published it in the New England Journal in 2011, and it really kind of set the, the path for my career. I spent the next decade basically just refining approaches to doing that outbreak reconstruction work. So it was figuring out how to do it better, developing new um, computational analyses tools, uh, using that technique for real public health investigations in BC, uh, more TB outbreaks. We did outbreaks of measles and mumps. Um, and then after I'd sort of done a bunch of that like methods development, uh, a lot of my work kind of switched to really helping to evangelize for genomic 
pandemic epidemiology and get people around the world, agencies like CDC in the US, Public Health England in the UK, WHO, et cetera, really getting them on board with this technique. Um, and yeah, over the decade that it was there, we really saw that approach to using genomics to disease reconstruction cemented as routine operations in these agencies. And now as everybody can see, they're starting to, to bear fruit when it comes to understanding things like the COVID pandemic. So it was an amazing decade. It was really exciting to be part of something so new and, uh, and blaze a trail. And it's really cool to see the legacy of that work now continuing on at places like BCCDC and, and other institutions. Well, I mean, you've just done us a huge favor here in putting, um, you know, in describing genomic epidemiology in such an accessible way, right? So this analogy that you're using of the the tome of world uh, of war and peace, and and you know this being the length of the of the genome and and finding these typos, I think it just really just done such a beautiful favor for us to really. Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, really, the, the power and. And maybe like the elegance, like there's just such an elegance in, in your in your description. Of Thank what you. I think it's a really elegant science. It's, it's very, it's very much like a bit of an art and a science at the same time. And it is at the end of the day, almost like being a detective, a disease detective, and just using this very cool genetic analysis technique to, to reveal these hidden mysteries. So it's quite elegant, I think. Yeah, I mean, it is. And, and as you're sort of saying, like everyone now has touched on you know the, the terminology of genomic uh, sequencing and and the power genomic sequencing and understanding these variants, like I'd say, like a lot of people have at least sort of okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that one in my head. Uh, I've heard this new terminology. It's around. It's in our kind of maybe not every day, but every week uh, discussion. Yeah. So that just helps put um, you know just some fine details on our understanding, and that actually leads me to my next question because. As part of your career um, journey and your academic journey has unfolded, you've really um, become very well known as a science communicator. And we now, you know, SciComm is like a hashtag now on Twitter. What, but I, you know, I think that you were really ahead of uh, ahead of that wave. And I, I want to understand a bit more about, you know, what inspired you to pursue scientific communication and and this evangelizing, I guess is the language that you used uh, before, but, but how did you get started? What inspired you to, to also contribute to making sure that the general public or a broader community of researchers or policymakers really understood the science that was emerging? Yeah, my SciComm journey, it's been a really long and interesting one. And it's one that I think actually started before I even knew what SciComm was and was almost sort of unintentional. Like if I go all the way back to childhood, I can tell you that I was always interested in the life sciences. You know, one of my favorite books as a kid was this book all about Louis Pasteur. I saw Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman when I was a teenager and I was like, I want to do that for the rest of my life. So I always had this real love for, for science and, and um, microbiology in particular. But I also had this other side of me that was really into um, sort of like communication and the performing arts. You know, back to when I was a little kid, I would always be putting on uh, puppet shows and little you know, song and dance routines for my family at dinner parties. Um, it was just something fun to do. And then unintentionally, I kind of kept going with that when I was an undergrad at university. I did my undergraduate degree at UBC. 
Um, and that was cell biology and genetics. So I was doing the science when I was in the classroom. But when I was out of the classroom, my big extracurricular activity was working at one of the newspapers on campus. It was the one put out by the Science Undergrad Society called the 432. It was uh, very much kind of a satire paper in the style of the Onion. And it was just fun. I, you know, I joined the newspaper staff because they seemed like a cool group of people who were having a good time. Um, there was never any sort of like, oh, this is a really practical skill that I'm going to be able to apply later in life. But looking back, um, that really did help to kind of kickstart that journey. Um, I went to McGill uh, to do uh, the last semester of my undergraduate degree and then a graduate diploma program. And again, you know, I was focusing on the science in the classroom, but my uh, day job, well, it was my evening job because I was in school in the days, but what I was doing outside of school was working at the Montreal Gazette in their newsroom and I really got to see how news got made, how stories got told, how paper came together and again you know I wasn't thinking of this as something that was going to be useful in my future career you know being Dustin Hoffman and Outbreak it was just something cool that I like to do that happened to pay the bills but when I came back uh, to BC I started my um, PhD in 2001 uh, with Fiona Brinkman at Simon Fraser University and when I was in the early days of my PhD, I would look at, you know, Fiona's job as a principal investigator in a, a university academic department. And I was like, I don't think I want to do that with the rest of my life. I don't know what I want to do, but I don't know that I want to be a traditional PI. And I knew that I loved communicating. I loved the the. the training aspects of what I was doing when you were TAing and putting together lecture materials, when you were giving a seminar in one of your classes, when you were designing a conference poster or writing a conference talk that you were in that stuff made me super happy. So I remember going to Fiona one day and saying, hey, I don't know what I want to do after this PhD thing. I'm pretty sure I don't want your job, but you know, I do like the communications aspect. And that conversation with her was the first time I'd actually heard about science communication as a field and realized that this was something that you could do as a career. Um, so Fiona suggested I chat with uh, Mark Winston, uh, another SFU prof who was in the biology department at the time. Um, and Mark had, in addition to a number of other really creative SciComm pursuits, he'd written a number of popular science books. So I basically wrote down this big list of questions, kind of informational interview. And I remember meeting Mark at the Cafe Artigiano downtown, right across from um, SFU's downtown campus, and just grilling him on all all things science communication. He was full of incredible advice, pretty much all of which I took. And two things in particular, I kind of catalyzed the next phase of my SciComm journey. One was that Mark said, you know, hey, you've got a track record in newspapers. You've got an interest in communicating. You should think about doing freelance work for newspapers or magazines. And he connected me with SFU News, which is sort of the, the official campus paper, not a student-run one, but one that comes out from the, the media and PR office. And I ended up becoming essentially their freelance science reporter for a few years when they had a faculty profile that they wanted to write. They'd call me and say, Jenny, can you do this thing? So I, you know, pull together my 400 words, submit my little article, and you'd find it like in the paper the next week. It was super cool. And the other thing Mark told me about 
he said that he had gotten together with another group of um, science communicators in Canada, including uh, Jay Ingram, who at the time was hosting Daily Planet on Discovery Channel. And they were coming together to create uh, a two-week intensive science communications residency program um, that was going to be run out of the Banff Center for the Arts. And so this conversation, I think it was probably about 2003, maybe that I talked to Mark and he said, as soon as this program officially launches, he said, it'll be a couple of years, but he said, as soon as it launches, apply, it's going to be incredible. So sure enough, um, program launches in 2006, uh, I apply, I use my portfolio of science writing that I'd been doing for SFU News and a couple other commissions and got into this two week program. And it was there um, that I had started to realize that writing about science was X amount of fun, but talking about science on TV was probably 100x the amount of fun. So when I was at that residency, I was just constantly following Jay Ingram and the other TV folks there around going, hey, how do you get on science television? What do you need to do? Can I have some practice scripts to read? And I did a little television project for um, the, the capstone project in that course, just being a total pest about it and just bugging them nonstop. And uh, sure enough, when I finished that two-week residency, I went back to regular science life. At this point, I was a postdoc in Bob Hancock's lab at UBC. Um, again, you know, doing computational biology, bioinformatics of infectious disease. Um, but about a month after I came back from Banff, I got an email saying CBC Television was looking for real-life scientists to host uh, a new program that they were developing, basically a spinoff um, from the nature of things. And so I submitted the TV project that I'd done at Banff as my little sort of audition tape, got a callback, had to do a couple little experiments on camera, a couple little interview type things, and was hired for that show, which eventually, you know, the pilot turned into an eight episode run. This was back in, gosh, 2007, 2008. And yeah, from there, um, science television is kind of a, a self-sustaining thing. You do one gig, people see you on TV and they will call you and invite you to do other things. So that little eight episode series for CBC ended up turning into doing a bunch of episodes of the nature of things. Um, I did probably four years, maybe five years of um, backfill hosting for Daily Planet. So when one of the regular hosts was away, I'd go step in and do that. Um, and then that, Term, you know, people see you on science TV and they say, hey, can you come, you know, write a book? And that's how I ended up doing two children's books, one about germs and uh, one about the digestive system that just came out last year. So it was really something that uh, I think, you know, ultimately, like I said, it traces back to this always present dual interest in both the life sciences and in communication and performance, but that was kind of like cultivated along the way, started to see those interactions um, between science, between science communication, have those really amazing connections early on that mentors provided me, uh, and then it just kind of snowballed from there, <laughs> and it's been an amazing Right. It's been incredibly fascinating. And I think what's been really cool, too, is that the chops that you develop as a professional science communicator or even as an amateur science communicator to somebody who's really passionate about it really do pay dividends in your scientific life. So it's been this beautiful interplay back and forth and, uh, and a really fun journey so far. Well, actually, that's exactly the follow up question that I was going to ask you while listening, which is that it's pretty evident 
how your scientific training has contributed to you, your scientific training and your work with these newspapers has contributed to you being a, a fantastic science communicator. But like, can you talk about the other part of this circle where experience and training in scientific communication, how does that influence the science and the research that you undertake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is, it's so interesting to see how those skills kind of feed back into your scientific life. And it is one of the reasons why I would say to anybody who is even, you know, half curious about science communication to just do it, you know, jump in feet first and get going. Because even if you don't want to be a professional science communicator, even if you don't want to be, you know, the TV host or the TikTok or YouTube personality or the Instagram influencer or the writer or the author, even if you don't want to be any of those things, even if you just, you know, want to be in your lab or working in industry or working in government or for a place like the Gates Foundation, the benefits of being a good communicator will trickle back. And this is at all levels of your career, too. I mean, this is just as relevant when you are a trainee as when you are a full faculty member as well and a tenured professor. So some of the things that I see one is when you can understand the power of narrative and how to tell a story. So much of what we do in science is storytelling. When we are writing a grant application, we are telling a story and hoping to convince reviewers to fund our science. When we are writing a journal, journal article, we are telling a story and we are hopefully you know, convincing reviewers and editors to publish in the journal that we want our paper to get into. But we want our readers to be taken along for this journey and have the information sort of clearly wash over them so they arrive at a conclusion. So being a good storyteller will help you write those compelling grant applications, those compelling scholarship applications, those compelling manuscripts. Um, and it also contributes to being able to give a really good talk about your work. So when you understand, as I said already, you know, the power of narrative, but when you understand how to explain things clearly in really digestible and accessible language when you understand how to you know hook people in um, and take them along on a really interesting journey with kind of a narrative arc and you build that into a conference talk that you give people are going to invite you back as an amazing speaker to give more conference talks. These are all things that, you know, pop up on those CVs, those academic activity reports, all the things that, you know, we incentivize in academia. The better communicator you are, the more of these chances you get, the, you know, the more grants you get awarded, the more scholarships you get, the more conference talk invitations you get. It just sort of keeps amplifying. And what I'd say to people that that are, you know, thinking about getting involved in this space and, you know, are listening to, to me talk about it. And I've just been all over the place in science communication, whether it's, you know, television, writing, news, you name it. Um, you don't have to be great at all of those things. There are so many niches that you can explore within science communication. You know, some people prefer the written word. Some people would prefer getting up on stage and giving a presentation. Some people like to work in visuals and coming up with really creative, beautiful ways to share their data. So, you know, find 
what you are passionate about and the medium that resonates with you. And then just start exercising that muscle. The more you do, the more you'll start to see these benefits like flow back into your science, into your research. Um, and like I said, they just keep amplifying and it is never, never too late to start. This isn't just something that is, you know, for uh, a grad student or a postdoc or an early career investigator. This is something that you can do at any point in your career and, and will generate those meaningful returns. I, well, I mean, I just want to thank you for raising that last point, because I think a lot of um, guidance and mentorship around SciComm goes to trainees, which is excellent. And, and in a lot of ways, at least in my experience, is that our trainees are like ahead of many faculty members in terms <laughs> <Yeah>. of <understanding laughs> the importance of it, having some skill set in this area, and so are almost like pulling us along. Okay? <laughs> yeah. um, and I think just sort of bringing home the point to anybody who's involved in science, no matter what level or level of experience or et cetera, like we can all do a lot better. And it's just, I love your, your analysis of like, it's a service to ourselves and our discipline and the research that we're involved in. In addition to the service, our service to the communities that, that we serve with our research. Yeah. So there's, there's you know, multiple um, ways that it pays back. And, and I think that, I, I just think that's such a wonderful way to think about the value of SciComm. And, and sometimes we add it, like it's that, that thing that you do on because mm -hmm. your university wants you to talk, but no, it's not that. It's a, it has a, a very deep intrinsic value. Absolutely. I've always said, you know, if you can't talk about the work in a compelling way, if you can't share, you know, the so what, the why should I care, it's as if you didn't do the work at all. Well, that's, that's actually quite a nice transition because now we've heard about, uh, we've learned a bit more about you and your background, your scientific training, um, your, your scientific expertise, how you came into SciComm. And now, you know, you've joined the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2019, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you've described your role, it's around eradicating, contributing to the effort to eradicate malaria globally. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the work that you do um, in that role. Of course, yeah. And I guess, you know, here it probably helps to start with a bit of an explainer around how the Gates Foundation um, works, because I think a lot of people have this vision that, you know, we're some sort of giant laboratory and, and Bill is constantly going around with a clipboard looking over our shoulder to see what we're up to. And the, it couldn't be farther from the truth. We don't actually do work directly. Really, the bulk of what we do as the foundation is investing in partners out there in the world who do. Sometimes those are academic labs, sometimes those are large implementing organizations uh, or agencies like the WHO, um, sometimes it's partners, delivery partners on the ground, sometimes it's industry. But really, um, we sort of exist to provide the resources and some intellectual steering that really helps that work to happen. Um, and it's, it's an interesting position too. I mean, it really does afford a certain amount of influence, um, a really interesting seat at a lot of these global decision-making tables. Um, but at the end of the day, really, you know, what we do is we fund work that we think will change the world. So the foundation, it's divided into a number of divisions. Global health is one of them, and that's the that's where I live. 
Within a division, there are a number of teams. Um, we often refer to these as PSTs, program strategy teams, but basically a team is either focused on a particular disease area, like malaria, which is the team that I work on, or it might be focused on a particular kind of foundational tool or method like vaccine development or disease surveillance in general. So each team has a North Star goal, the thing that we are all aligned and working towards. And generally, this is a goal that is shared with the rest of the community. And in the case of malaria, our North Star goal is malaria eradication, zero malaria worldwide in our lifetime. And what we as a team do is on a cycle that can vary from every sort of three to 10 years, we write a strategy document. And the strategy says, what do we as the Gates Foundation experts in malaria that have a very big picture view of the malaria world, what do we think needs to happen out there in the malaria ecosystem over the next five years, over the next 10 years to get us closer to that North Star goal? And on the malaria team, we have what we describe as very end-to-end -end strategy. So we focus on everything from upstream research and development that could be new diagnostics, it could be new anti-malarial medicines, it could be new malaria vaccines. And then we focus on everything all the way down to how do we get those tools out in the field and how do we generate you know, political will? How do we get advocacy happening around malaria? So it's front of mind um, to agencies like WHO, to entities like the Global Fund that provide a lot of financing for malaria commodities. So it's really, we cover everything um, from like I said, product development through to deployment, through to um, just getting people to pay attention to this problem. So what I do, um, I lead the surveillance data and epidemiology portfolio, and that is um, really focused on empowering a national malaria control program in a malaria endemic country. And this is largely, um, our work is focused in Sub-Saharan Africa. My portfolio is all about what are the things that will help those country programs make better decisions with higher quality data around their malaria strategic plans. So every national malaria control program, I often call them NMCPs for short, they'll have a strategic plan. It's basically a roadmap that says, you know, in Mozambique, in Ghana, in Cameroon, in Nigeria, over the next 10 years, you know, what are we going to roll out in terms of interventions and where? Are we going to use, you know, bed nets in this district, but maybe not in this district because over there the mosquitoes bite outdoors in the daytime instead of inside at night? Are we going to try out seasonal malaria chemo prevention in children in this district because malaria is very seasonal in this area, but maybe we won't try it in this district because malaria occurs year round. The National Strategic Plan is basically a country's roadmap for malaria control. And so my portfolio is all about investing in things that help countries make better national strategic plans. If you wanna make a plan like that, if you wanna be able to exquisitely target your malaria interventions in the right combination, in the right district, right place, right time, you need really good quality data about malaria epidemiology. And that you know, also pulls in data around climate. It 
pulls in data about you know housing structures and where are people living in structures that are likely to have mosquitoes coming in at night. Uh, it also involves things like where is drug resistance occurring? Where are some of the medications that we're currently using maybe not the best choice and should be replaced with something else? Where does insecticide resistance? Where are they like where does that come into play? Where are there mosquitoes that are going to be resistant to the insecticides that we commonly use on bed nets? So our portfolio is um, investing in better quality data. It is investing in genetic, genomic epidemiology, like I described earlier, but using it not to study viruses and bacteria, but to discover or to look at the malaria parasite as well as the mosquito vector and look at things like the presence of markers associated with drug resistance or insecticide resistance and how populations of parasites or mosquitoes are changing over time. And we also invest a lot in analytics and the uh, analysts who do the work. Um, if you are trying to develop a malaria control program, maybe you've got a couple different ideas about combinations of interventions and where to use which combination. With math modeling, with simulation, you can test those um, on the computer. You can say, okay, well, you know, what happens if I put more bed nets over here and take them away from here? Well, what happens if I do more case management in this area and less in this area? Um, and you can do all that in the context of available budgets. You know, if you know the Global Fund against um, AIDS, TB, and malaria is going to give you, say, a hundred million dollar allocation to buy malaria commodities, you can say, well, what's the most cost? effective way to spend that hundred million dollars? Should I be spending it all on bed nets? How should I be distributing it across other interventions? So we fund a lot of the math modelers and the data analysts who are doing that work and, and sitting there side by side with national malaria control programs and helping them to craft those national strategic plans. So really, um, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, spending money to ensure that better data is being used to drive better decision making, better evidence based and more bespoke malaria control plans. And ultimately, on this sort of three, five, 10 year strategic planning cycle, getting us closer and closer to that ultimate goal of malaria elimination within a country and malaria eradication worldwide. This is fantastic. So let me ask you one follow-up question. Um, as you know, with the Women's Health Research Institute, our upcoming, we're having an upcoming symposium, which we're so excited uh, that you're going to be one of the speakers there. But I wanted to, before I get into questions about that, wanted to ask you in your data in your approaches and your strategic plans, like how much do, do questions of equity or sex and gender-based analyses or, or those kinds of considerations feature in these strategic plans and approaches and, and just overall thinking about malaria el elimination and eradication? Huge, 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 huge. Um, I am a massive advocate for moving the nexus of all of this work to, in the case of malaria, malaria endemic countries. Um, so often you see, uh, you know, academic groups, researchers sort of parachuting in to help with this stuff. Like, oh, we're a modeling unit that's gonna go in and help this team. Oh, we're a, a genomics lab that's going to take samples collected by our local collaborator, fly them to a lab halfway around the world and, you know, sequence and analyze them and publish on them there. Uh, that is not the model that should be 
at all prevalent anywhere in global health. So I take a very strong view in my portfolio about moving money to where malaria is. Um, and right away, that is something that is in showing your commitment to equity. Uh, and I think what is really cool about the foundation as well, Melinda French Gates, Melinda French now, her leadership has been incredible in the gender space. And she created a division of gender equity at the foundation and has got every single team at the foundation asking themselves, where do gender and my disease portfolio intersect? And how do I take that into account to make gender intentional or even gender transformative investments. So on the malaria team, we were actually lucky enough to be one of the first teams at the foundation to go through um, a pretty intensive training on helping us understand the intersection between malaria and gender and helping us to account for that in the investments that we're making. And I think, you know, if you, if you know malaria at all, you can look back and there's obvious um, points of intersection between the disease and between gender. For example, malaria in pregnancy, it's an absolutely massive issue. Um, all sorts of interesting, unique considerations when it comes to burden of disease, when it comes to treatment, etc. But there's other ways in which um, gender impacts malaria service delivery. Um, for example, bed net distribution. You know, we assume that when a bed net is distributed in a community, it's going to then be slept under. It needs to be slept under for it to be effective. But if a woman in the household isn't given the agency to go out and get that bed net from the campaign um, that's distributing them, go out and purchase one locally, make the decision about hanging it up in their home. If it's you know a husband who's making those decisions and is saying, well, I'm gonna take this bed net and I'm gonna use it to go fishing, use it as a fishing net instead. Um, right then and there, you've got inequity in the way a very powerful intervention, a very powerful resource can be used. So oftentimes, you know what I've learned over the past three years of this kind of gender and grant making and investment making journey is that there can be many unintended consequences, um, gender focused consequences of what on the surface seems like a really good intervention or you're trying to do a good thing. But then there are these unintended consequences where if you don't stop and think right at the outset of designing a project, designing an investment, if you don't stop to think about those, um, you really have the opportunity to do more harm than good. So I'm really grateful to the foundation for making gender such a central part of our commitment to equity. Um, I would totally recommend if anybody's interested in exploring more about how the foundation sees gender and sees its intersection in the different areas that we work in. Um, we have a really great uh, resource online. It's uh, Gates Gender Equality Toolbox.org. Uh, it is fantastic. There's a ton of really, really good resources on there, um, but it really outlines in a nice way um, the, the framework through which we approach gender in the global health and global development space and the, the ways we consider it in our grant making. That is fantastic. And uh, I'm definitely familiar with the toolkit, but it's a great and it's a great reminder that as part of promoting this, um, this podcast that we could also link to, to tools such as that.
uh, just making sure that there's greater visibility about the types of tools that are out there to support mm -hmm. approaches. And I think, you know, that really takes me into my next, well, I've got so many questions for you, but it's, yeah, I'm going to try <laughs> to keep it focused. But my next question is really about this, our, our symposium. And mm -hmm. if I could share a bit of background thinking about our theme this year. So every year, the Women's Health Research Institute hosts um, an annual research symposium focusing and highlighting uh, the, the contributions of women's health researchers and research. And this year, we've chosen a theme uh, called From Cell to Society, Women's Health Research to Address Shared Global Challenges. And I mean, after the two plus years that we've been in uh, collectively as a global community with the with pandemic restrictions and, and protections, I think that the, the thinking is we're all a little bit more steeped in our interconnectedness in a sense and, and the ways in which what happens locally has implications for us globally. So we, we've kind of uh, maybe folks who weren't talking about these connections two years ago, probably a little bit more steeped in those conversations now. So we thought, oh, this mm -hmm. is just a really fantastic opportunity to expand those conversations beyond COVID, right? Mm -hmm. where, where, how should we think about ourselves as women's health researchers um, and, our, and our research as contributing or maybe not contributing to shared global challenges? And as part of that theme, it's been very interesting. Um, a lot of researchers, of course, don't really consider themselves as quote unquote global health researchers. They have mm -hmm. a, a very, what I would think a little bit maybe antiquated understanding of global health researchers as you know, intrepid adventures, you know, <laughs> going to the field and, or something like that. And really, you know, I'm, I'm really from a perspective of like actually of a calling in, maybe like a big tent type mm -hmm. of thinking of, of global health research is no matter what research that you're in, how can we think of questions of, of global equity? How can we just think of questions of equity overall? So as part of this symposium, um, we're just, I'm just really looking forward to like engaging in those uh, conversations with members of our community. And I think we also want to really spark imagination and discussion about the scale, the spread, the potential impact that mm -hmm. we can collectively have at, at local through to global levels. Yeah. And, you know, we're so excited that you're going to be able to come yeah, in some capacity to, to give us uh, our spotlight talk around, um, you know, eradicating malaria globally and some exciting work around the malaria vaccine, which mm -hmm. of course is massive, um, huge news uh, that maybe didn't get as much, you know, fireworks uh, as, as at least in our world, as, as we might've hoped because we've just been so inundated uh, by the COVID kind of obsession. But I wanted to ask you, like thinking from your perspective as a uh, working at the forefront of, of malaria globally, what are your thoughts about how we can think about local research contributing to global equity in health? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a great question. Um, you know, to go back to something I said earlier, I think the Gates Foundation malaria strategy, I, I described as an end-to-end -end strategy. Um, you know, if we are going to eradicate malaria, it's going to take everything from upstream research and development, um, you know, making the existing tools that we have 
better and also developing new tools. You, know, you mentioned the RTSS vaccine. What are the next second generation vaccines that are going to come after that? What are the next insecticides? What are the next anti-malarials? What are better diagnostics? So we've got all this sort of upstream R&D work, um, but then we also have all that local um, delivery work, the implementation science, the getting this stuff out there in the field. And all of that is sort of wrapped in this whole, you know, advocacy and, and policy wrapping paper. Um, so I think, you know, any global health issue can be seen in the same way. And when you're approaching a, a disease, whether it's TB, whether it's HIV, whether it's malaria, with a multi-pronged approach, it takes everything from that very technical upstream R&D to that very, you know, boots on the ground delivery and local advocacy and political will. Um, so there's a lot of things that are required and that work really unfolds on a continuum. So, you know, at any point in time, you've got people that are doing a lot of that highly technical upstream, say drug development work. And that tends to be focused in places like North America, um, like Western Europe. Um, but that upstream work in you know, developing a new vaccine, that vaccine will one day be rolled out as an intervention in a setting um, like Nigeria or Tanzania or Kenya or Mali. And so this work is happening on multiple fronts and it's happening in multiple places. So I think if you're somebody that um, doesn't necessarily identify as you know, a global health researcher, you probably are playing a role somewhere in that global health ecosystem. If you sit back and take a look at where your work sits on that continuum, um, it can be really interesting to think about well, where does my work go next? You know, if you're sitting there in a lab in Vancouver and you are at the, the wet bench and you're doing work um, that is going to lead to say potentially new therapeutic, um, you tend to see your work through your lens. It's, okay, I'm, I'm sitting at my bench, I'm doing this work, this is the result I want. But it can be really interesting and informative and sometimes like a bit of a, um, I don't know, like an ego check moment to look at your work through those downstream lenses. Like what happens if this does turn into a drug? How is this going to get out there in the world? How am I going to help ensure that the delivery ecosystem that I'm contributing to with my R&D um, is going to be one that is equitable? You know, I mentioned making gender intentional investments. If I develop something cool, I don't want it only to be available to half of the population. I want to make sure that everybody needs it, uh, that needs it can have access to it. So thinking about where you sit on that, um, say, that translational continuum and where the work that you are doing in Vancouver, what implications might it have 5, 10, 15 years down the road for somebody living in, say, a malaria endemic country? So looking at yourself and your position on that journey and recognizing what the global health angles to your work might be. Um, and I think that also, um, it often gives people sort of a moment of reckoning. Um, we see this often with um, academics, with researchers who are engaged in really highly technical programs and they develop something incredibly cool. And they're like, oh yeah, this thing is totally gonna save the world. That's gonna make such a difference. But it ends up being you know, far too complex a solution for the problem at hand. I, for example, have a colleague in one of the Africa uh, offices that the Gates Foundation runs. He's one 
of my favorite people to talk to there. He works on improving health data systems. And he frequently says, he's a Kenyan-born researcher, he's working out of Kenya now. Um, he frequently says that you know, researchers will come in with a Mercedes, not recognizing that the immediate problem is that there is no road. <laughs> and so I think that can often be one of those reality checks as you think about you know, where your local work might have global implications. You might be attacking the a problem from far too complex an angle. And there might be something out there that, you know, when you really engage with end user communities, um, you suddenly realize like, oh, we've been approaching this all wrong. It's actually a much more simple or elegant solution. So um, I would encourage anybody that's got an interest in global health um, to really be engaged from day zero with colleagues, you know, in country who have lived experience with whatever the issue at hand is, um, really co-creating research projects and solutions with them. And I think another big thing that, you know, sometimes people People need to be reminded of is that you got to know when to step back too. Um, like if you want, if you've developed a really interesting global health intervention and you want to see that succeed, it really needs local ownership. It needs local expertise. It needs local advocates. So if you're somebody that's coming from, you know, a place like Canada and partnering with researchers overseas, you have to recognize when it is time to like truly hand the project off to local colleagues to you know cut the cord. Um, I think there's a lot of partnerships that you see between academic institutions in places like North America and Western Europe, and then partner uh, universities or institutes in other countries. And those are very appealing. Like you said, you know it's fun to go out in the field and be that intrepid global health explorer, and it's exciting. You know, as a young trainee to be able to work overseas, see impact, get new perspectives, but it's so appealing that it makes it very difficult to kind of cut that cord. So I think people need to be better at going into global health work with an expectation that, you know, you got to build an off-ramp for yourself. You have to be transferring that technology, transferring that capacity, um, and being willing to, you know, cut the cord and step back. Um, power asymmetries, colonial legacies are very real, very live in global health. And it can be really tough conversations for people um, from what people often describe as the global north. You have and be willing to say, this is not my place. <laughs> I can do a little bit of work, um, but I need to know when to step back um, and really ensure that this is being driven locally. So the, the local global balance, it's, it's a very interesting one. There's global imp implications for almost everything we do, but how we handle those um, and how we handle the power asymmetries inherent in trying to take local expertise in and bring it globally, um, it just says a lot about us as academics and researchers. Oh my gosh, I could not agree more with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think as somebody working at a foundation like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I'm sure this is, um, you know, a conversation that you've got to engage in with yourself, with your colleagues, mm -hmm. um, and, and really just, it's, it's, it's tough space, and it's, but it's also transformative space. So yeah. I think there's so many reflections there that are going to be so helpful to listeners and just you know, what, like we were saying, anywhere along your training um, and work trajectory uh, to really reflect, you know, local to global and then global to local, like mm -hmm. these processes are also part of our work, yeah. right? They're not somebody else's work. They're also part of our work. So let me, let me ask you like, for the work that you're doing right now, just tell us a bit about what, what's really exciting you the most about the work you're involved in now. 
Ooh, gosh, so much. Um, I love my job. <laughs> Every morning when I wake up, I pinch myself that I get to do this. Um, I think right now it's a really exciting and interesting time on our malaria eradication uh, journey. We're at a point where the majority of cases are really concentrated in um, sub-Saharan Africa. The malaria community is really aligned around the need to take this more sort of bespoke, tailored approach, um, you know, which intervention should we use? What's the, the right place and the right time for the right combination of interventions? And I think we have an opportunity to really kickstart um, renewed declines in uh, malaria incidents in sub-Saharan Africa. We saw in the early 2000s, you know, plummeting incidents just as a result of good penetration of bed nets, um, other vector control, mosquito control interventions. And that, that progress is sort of flatlined, but we have now with this bespoke approach to malaria planning, I think an opportunity to really, you know, kickstart those declines uh, again. So that's really exciting. I think the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been some silver linings in the pandemic. And I think one of those silver linings has been underscoring the value of some of these new approaches, whether that's the genomic epidemiology um, whether it is math modeling um, to compare different scenarios or generate forecasts, um, whether it's advocacy and just having um, voices of in affected communities and people around the table, uh, I think uh, you've got this unique opportunity to seize that momentum, to seize, you know, ministries of health and public health agencies' interest in those areas and some of the nascent capacity that's being developed over the course of the pandemic and really leverage those in the fight against malaria. Um, and certainly, you know, the pandemic did present challenges. It certainly um, set what in many cases were very already fragile health systems back. Recovery is going to be hard. I think domestic spending on um, things like malaria in malaria endemic countries is likely to drop. We also have this interesting emergence of sort of first signals of artemisinin resistance in sub-Saharan Africa starting to emerge. So we've got this really interesting time where there's all this like really cool, exciting stuff that we can do, but we've got a couple big challenges facing us. And that combination of opportunity and like, uh-oh, uh, it's just, it's what I live for. It's, it's so problem solving. And it, this is, you know, I got into infectious disease because I wanted to solve outbreaks. And now what I do every day is doing that on a much bigger scale. So I'm excited about everything. Um, but yeah, really kind of advancing that agenda of what we call subnational tailoring, better data for decision-making, harnessing some of that pandemic momentum and just looking at a new era in how we approach malaria control. So, I mean, this, this sort of really big thinking is so like refreshing as part of this conversation, right? Like what are the systems at place? What are the kind of structural forces at place, um, in place, or what are the kind of economic trends happening local level, uh, globally? Do you, do you, in terms of the work that you do, like, do you see any really like, these are really the main challenges ahead of us? There's gonna be, you know, along the way, there's gonna be here and there, but you know, do you have a sense of like, these are the big challenges ahead towards eradication? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mentioned a few just now, you know, the pandemic recovery thing, this um, artemisinin resistance emergence signal that we're getting. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, the biggest challenge is the one that is common to every public health effort ever, which is budget. It's the money to do this. Um, you know, I mentioned Outbreak earlier, which is a, a terrible infectious disease movie. A much better infectious disease movie is Contagion. And my favorite line in contagion is when one of the epidemiologists is helping to set up a rapid field hospital um, and she's being followed around by a local bureaucrat who's going, whose budget is this going to come out of? And it's really the same, no matter what disease you're talking about. Um, We know from modeling, um, cost-effectiveness modeling, um, we know what it's going to take to be able to fully fund the breadth and the coverage of interventions that we will need to drive malaria down to zero. And it's a lot more money, billions of dollars more than what is currently going into the the global malaria um, finance ecosystem. So I think the biggest challenge is always going to be that budget piece. Um, It's ironic to say for somebody that works um, for a foundation like the Gates Foundation, which has such a big endowment, but the reality is there's so many different players in any disease space. You know, we're just a, a small fry in the malaria world, um, but it's going to take incredible global donor coordination to ensure that this campaign really is appropriately resourced. So that's the biggest challenge. How do we pay for it all? How do we pay for it all? Well, Jen, I'll just say thank you so much. That's that's the end of uh, the questions that I had for you. And just wanted to give you a chance if there was any other messages or Uh, thoughts that you wanted to share with our listeners will probably be mostly from a women's health research community. Any final thoughts? Yeah, you know, as as folks that are working in women's health work, I think uh, we all have a duty to be the evangelists for getting our peers, getting our colleagues to pay attention that to the fact that there is a gender lens to everything that we do. Gender matters. And when it comes to health research, whether that is health research in Vancouver, whether it is health research on the other side of the world in Sub-Saharan Africa, gender matters. Um, So share that with your peers. Talk to them about the ways that you consider gender and women's health in your own research and help them to see how it unfolds in their own work too. I think one of the most beautiful things I've been able to take away from my time at the foundation so far has been getting to talk to such a diverse group of experts, people that are committed to global health equity, global development, gender equity, people that work in um, everything from you know upstream pharmaceutical R&D to market dynamics to political advocacy and strategic communications. I love talking to other people and getting their perspectives on what I do. And so if you, as a women's health researcher and women's health expert, can go out and share your perspective with other people, you will be doing them a tremendous service. So talk about what you do. Talk about why it matters and why it's so important. Uh, And just do awesome science. Just do awesome science. Well, Jen, thank you so much. Um, You've given us a lot to think about today. But I think also really importantly, you've given us a lot to do you know, um, and sometimes these issues can just feel a little bit overwhelming, like, okay, I know this is a big deal, but I don't really know where to start. 
And I, I really want to thank you for giving us just so many uh, so many kind of pieces of, of advice and guidance around like there's there's actually stuff that you can do right now today. So I really genuinely thank you so much. It has been a total pleasure. It, these things are marathons, not sprints. And uh, as we have painted on the wall at the foundation, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. If you have an idea for an episode or have some research of your own to share, let us know. Send us an email at whri.communications at cw.bc.ca. For more information about WHRI, follow us on social media using the handle at Women's Research or check out our website at whri.org.